Hello, it is 21st of October 2016, and this is episode three of Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. Right, so Kirsty, welcome back. How's your week in Star Wars been? Uh, Pretty good. I started us a Twitter account. Mm-hmm. So people can find us at Scavengers Horde on Twitter, and uh, it's been really great so far. We've made a lot of cool connections with people in the Star Wars fandom, and um, been championed by some of our favorite podcasts. So that's really cool. Amanda Ward at Rebel Girl was recommending us to people, which was really exciting to see because we're only on our third episode. It's obviously very early days, but that was that was a really nice shout out from her. So thank you, Amanda. Yes, that was so, so good. I was really excited to see that um, because it's awesome when you see these people who you admire in the fandom and then they notice you. It's like, somebody noticed me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's really exciting. So thank you, Amanda, if you're listening. And you're awesome and everyone should listen to Rebel Girl. Um, my week in Star Wars has perhaps been a little less illustrious than Kirsty's and that I haven't been hobnobbing with the greats of the Star Wars fandom. Um, but I did watch the first 10 minutes of Battle for Endor, the Ewok movie. Um, and how was that? It, it was beautiful, Kirsty. It was a piece of magnificent and profound art. Um, no, it's, it's obviously a bit rubbish. Um, I kind of stopped because I thought, no, I'm going to corrupt all those precious childhood memories. Um, and I thought it wasn't worth it. Um, but the main thing that stuck out to me was the way that the Ewoks are done because they don't blink. It's so, so creepy. I, I think I really understand now that the special editions did a good thing in making the Ewoks blink because it's freaky. They just stare and they just have these black dead eyes that just like stare into the abyss. And it's especially creepy because like the opening of Battle for Endor is Sindel, who's like this little blonde cherubic child and she's like skipping along with Wicket, the, the Ewok. And it's like something out of a horror movie. It's really disturbing. It's like Chucky, but with teddy bears. Um, and yeah, it was just like, oh, it's very creepy. Um, yeah, I, I like the Ewoks, but at the same time, you can see that creepiness to them. <laughs> Which is true with a lot of things from childhood, right? Like childhood characters and, and fairy tale things like that. There's, they've kind of got this dark side, if you... If you look a bit closer, like sometimes things are just a bit creepy. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, I think especially the Ewoks, because they actually have them like threatened to beat Luke and the gang. So they do start on a rather dark edge. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think you register that really when you're a child. Maybe on a subliminal level, but I wasn't that perceptive. I was like, Teddy! <laughs> um Right, so with that nonsense out of the way, it's probably a good time to move on to news. And this time in news, it's very much a blast from the past, because we're going back to The Force Awakens, with an ever-increasing number of clips of J.J. Abrams delivering his audio commentary on the new collector's edition of the film. Um, And there's just so many I, I'm just going through the tally here and I don't think I even have them all in the notes because another one has been released just before we started um, but so far we have a clip where JJ is speaking about the scene where Kylo kills Han 
we have one where JJ is speaking on the final confrontation with Ray and Kylo. We have one where JJ is speaking on the original meeting between Finn and Ray. And we have JJ speaking on the vision. Um, can you think of any I'm missing, Kirsty? Like one more came out, didn't it, just now? Yeah, the one that just came out before we started um, was Snoke and Kylo having the conversation when it's first revealed that Han Solo is Kylo Ren's father. Yeah, no, it's kind of a bit overwhelming to me. Like, and it, so it just feels like this information overload, like which is ridiculous because he's not actually saying anything that insightful. Right. Like I've seen this described as like the audio description version of The Force Awakens just delivered by J.J. Abrams because often he is literally just describing exactly what's happening on the screen and this kind of thing when I listen to the commentary obviously I'm a complete sucker so I'm going to buy the collector's edition and listen to it and take notes like no doubt but it does kind of make me wonder like how much value there is in having a commentary at this point because JJ is so constrained in what he can say without being snipered. Yeah, I almost wonder if he had someone from Lucasfilm standing over him, like, glaring at him so that he wouldn't reveal anything. I reckon that they probably tried filming it, like, five times or something. And by the end of it, it's like, I don't want to see it anymore. Make it stop. Um, I've said before, we don't expect him to be really giving us anything truly unexpected here mm. but the kylo killing his father scene to us what he's saying like oh kylo's conflicted he almost goes home you know but he doesn't believe he thinks that he's too far gone even though he knows deep down that snoke is using him mm. that to me is all there in the scene you know so while it's nice to have that confirmation from jj it's it doesn't tell us really anything new yeah, that's pretty much how I feel, to be honest. It's kind of like, it, it, it feels just obvious to me. But at the same time, I, I see these people and they seem to be under the impression that Kylo was like play acting and being conflicted and being sad and miserable and tearful purely to lure his father out so he could murder him in cold blood. And so I think for those people, it's probably good that JJ is stating the obvious and saying these things because despite what is evident to say you and me that didn't reach everyone i don't think which is why you see these ridiculous headlines treating kylo ren is conflicted like (laughs) massive shocking news i mean isn't that one of the main parts of his character in the force awakens like that that he feels the pull to the light he says that when he's in a room by himself you know he's not trying to trick anyone that's key to understanding kylo ren you know you can see him as a villain but he's not this cold calculating scheming villain yeah no i feel pretty much the same when it comes to that and like how did you miss this um but yeah frustrations aside like was there anything that really jumped out to you about jj's comments was there anything that you thought oh that's interesting or i didn't know that or that seemed cool or anything along those lines the most interesting parts for me um, are when he says what they were originally planning to do with a scene. Mm. Um, it really kind of gives you that insight into production process and how things in storytelling do move around. Um, so when he was talking about Finn and Ray first meeting, he said that originally Ray was not going to have heard of Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie itself, she says, I thought he was a myth. Um, and then also that at that point, originally they were going to have Finn admit that he was a stormtrooper straight away he wasn't going to lie 
mm. which seems like it would change their dynamic quite significantly. Um, because you wouldn't have that confession at Maz's castle. You wouldn't really have that tension where the audience knows something and Ray doesn't. Yeah, no, I totally um, found that really insightful, actually. I like to know about the process that goes into these things and to discover how it changed. Um, so, yeah, that like really stuck out to me as perhaps the most worthwhile parts of these like comments from JJ. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to listen to the whole commentary because when you get these little snippets, it's tempting to look way too far into them, as we do with all things Star Wars related. <laughs> but um, as part of a bigger picture of JJ talking about the entire film, I think things will be put into context a bit more. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's important not to approach these comments in isolation because we have no sense of what he's saying on either side of them. Like he might say something after the clip ends that completely changes the context for the comment he's just made. Um, so yeah, you need to approach it with caution. Um, the thing I found most interesting was that when he was commenting on the vision, he compared Ray finding the box of the lightsaber in it to Cinderella, um, which I found quite intriguing. But then when I reflected, and also when I saw some people commenting on this on, on Reddit, um, I realised that he probably got his Disney movies confused and actually meant Sleeping Beauty. Because if you think back to Sleeping Beauty, when she goes back to the castle and she's suddenly in a trance and she's drawn towards the um, spinning wheel, which mm. is obviously going to prick her and put her into the curse. And with Rey, there's like a similar sense of her being bewitched almost and being drawn to this object that's perhaps forbidden that she shouldn't go to. Um, but she goes to it anyway, despite really knowing why. And yeah, there's quite an interesting parallel. I'm not sure if it means anything, but I am pretty sure he was just getting his Disney movies confused when he said Cinderella there. Yeah, maybe, because with Aurora, there's also that whole once upon a dream thing with the vision. Mm. Like that idea of familiarity, that when she meets Kylo, she's already met him in a sense. Yes, no, definitely. That's a very good point. Um, and also with Sleeping Beauty, you have this concept of this young child being sent away from her family when she's very, very young and raised by strangers. And she doesn't know anything about her true history or heritage. So there is actually quite a lot there in the Sleeping Beauty parallel. Um, and I think it probably bears some more, a closer resemblance to Ray's story than Cinderella does. Yeah, that makes sense. It's quite interesting. Um, but to move on, we have another piece of news. And it's another release from this new collector's edition of The Force Awakens. And this time it's a deleted scene with Unkar and Rey. And we actually discussed this a few episodes ago, but basically the idea is that Unkar Plutt tracks the Millennium Falcon and essentially confronts Rey in Maz's castle. And he's like a bit creepy and snide and he's like bullying Ray essentially and then Chewbacca intervenes and things get ugly from there although the clip cuts off before we see what is actually the climax which is where Plutzan gets torn off um but yeah how did you feel about this scene Kirsty? did you think it was a good choice that it was deleted yes I, I think it is a good choice that it was deleted but it's still interesting to see that because again I find that filmmaking and editing process very interesting um i just like we said before in our previous conversation about it i just don't think it adds that much to the story 
um, once Ray has left Jakku, um, mm-hmm. it just seems like Unkar is a villain who belongs in that specific place. And maybe it's supposed to be, oh, well, even though she's left it behind, that kind of, those memories and her horrible experiences there will still follow her psychologically. Mm-hmm. But it just it just seems out of place to me. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. It's almost like having Uncarpolet there in that scenario, in that setting. It's like having a polar bear in the middle of that Amazon jungle. It just is completely incongruous and it just seems wrong on a fundamental level because your brain is just protesting at the presence of this character in this place. Um, And also just for pacing reasons, it just completely puts everything on a halt and like it completely draws focus away from what ought to be the main purpose of that scene which is obviously ray going down into the basement and finding the lightsaber so yeah from a filmmaking point of view is absolutely the right reason to remove it um i was kind of pleased to see it was less creepy than the novelized version which kind of accentuated the icky factor like in essentially making plot seem quite predatory towards ray um and you don't get quite that much of that vibe in the deleted scene um, I'd say it's still there to a minor extent but it's more this idea of him perceiving her as his slave and his property um, rather than there being any kind of icky sexual subtext to it which, which I think is a good thing so I think it can be a bit too cheap sometimes to focus on this predatory element <laughs> yeah I agree and at the end of the day while the adult novelization obviously wasn't going to be read by children the film will be watched by children so you have to be careful about that kind of thing. Um, oh yeah, the only other thing I was thinking is I'm quite intrigued by the idea of Plut tracking down Ray as he does like in any event. I just find the fact that he does that interesting because you'd think that he'd maybe track the Falcon, get the Falcon, and then just fly off. Like, why is he so interested in getting Ray herself back? Obviously she's a good scavenger, she's very productive she presumably makes a lot of profit for him like in a very marxist way um but at the same time it's almost like there's a sense of urgency surrounding him feeling like he needs to get right back to jakku and i do almost wonder if that's tied to him knowing something about her or being the person that was shown dragging her away when she was a child like what do you think like it, it might be completely misplaced but I just find the idea quite interesting. Yeah, I think that's worth exploring in terms of what he knows about her past and whether he was ordered to keep her there somehow Mm. and whether his cronies have been asked in the past to keep an eye on her and make sure she doesn't wander off too far. Yeah, no, I can't escape the feeling that there must be something there that if anyone on Jakku knows anything about Ray's background and where she comes from, then it's got to be Platt. Because there's a reason why they had him be the person dragging off Ray as a tiny child. Or at least I'd like to think there's a reason. Like, because it's clearly deliberate, you can hear his voice, you can see his big, meaty hand dragging her off. So it's not like we're not meant to make that association. We are meant to realise that Plutz was the one who was dragging Ray away when she was calling out for that ship to come back for her. I wouldn't be surprised if in episode 9 we're back on Jakku and Ray's kind of going after Plut for answers or something relating to Jakku being special in a wider sense as well not just about Ray. I could definitely see that um it would also be whole the whole 
ring theory thing because then that would be mirroring the original trilogy where obviously in A New Hope you have Tatooine and then in Return of the Jedi they go back to Tatooine. So I could see them using Jakku like that. So obviously while it's not Tatooine, I could see them making pit stops there in a similar way to what they did in the original trilogy. Yeah, I can see that. Because then it's it's kind of an easy way to say, look how far the hero has come since they left this place and they've come back, but for very different purposes. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, because the Luke who goes back to Tatooine and Return of the Jedi is definitely a long, long way from the farm boy <laughs> who left that planet <laughs> two films ago. Um, so yeah, it'd be cool to see, like, if they do something really daring with Rey, like have a go dark side or something. I'd love to see her kill blood. <laughs> I know this sounds really bloodthirsty, but no. I think if she kills anyone, it has to be blood. Exactly. I think that would be a, a good way because obviously she would be dark in that moment, but people would be almost cheering her on, right? Because this is that downtrodden villain who was, he, he was keeping her downtrodden, I should say. Um, and then it, he gets his comeuppance almost. So even though it would be indicative of her being falling to the dark or being tempted or whatever, it wouldn't sully Ray too much in the eyes of the audience. Yeah, no, totally. Um, because we're clearly being encouraged to hate Plot on like this very deep and raw level. So even if Ray kills him, we'll know like on an intellectual level that that's bad. You shouldn't murder people. But at the same time, you'd be like, oh, that's so good. So, <laughs> so good. Like, like say, and everyone would give her for that. It'd be a much easier return for her from that than it's going to be for Kylo after killing her. Like, there's a lot more to do there and bringing that character back than there would be to bring Rey back if she were to kill Plut and not do much else in terms of murdering and killing people. Yeah, I agree. Right, we can move on. And the next piece of news is Rogue One related. And we basically have a bunch of new tops trading cards. And these basically come from Making Star Wars and Entertainment Weekly. Um, and I think they're really cool. They, they're obviously not spoiler sources or incredibly revealing. But I feel that they give a better sense of the scope of this world. And we get to see more characters and environments, which I really appreciate. Um, were you able to take a look at them, Kirsty? Yeah, I had a look. Um, it really brings it home to me that there's so many new characters. Mm. Like, it's going to be interesting to see how much we actually learn about each of them in the movie because it's going to be so fast-paced, I'm guessing. And there really are so many of them. How how much are we really going to get to know them? I would guess not very well. <laughs> um, to put it mildly, like, so there's General Merrick, for example. I'd be shocked if General Merrick has more than two lines. <laughs> I don't think these are going to be characters that are going to enter the annals of Star Wars history because you're already really loaded in terms of main characters just because of the setup of this movie. Because obviously you have this idea of this like band of rebels going up against the Empire. There's quite a big band, like Jin and like her posse, so to speak. Um, there's a lot of them to begin with. And because you're already going to have to concentrate quite a lot of attention on them, can be very limited attention to disperse amongst all these ancillary characters who can be surrounding them. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe there's opportunity later to explore those in comics and books and stuff like that. Oh, totally. Um, like, on a cynical marketing level, I'm sure that's why they're there, because ten years down the line, there'll probably be the General Merrick story, and then it'll be, like, about the heartbreaking 
like account of how he had to leave his wife and children behind on Yavin. Like he went out to fly his X-wing and he never came back. Um, <laughs> like there will be something like that in the future. All these characters. Um, but at the same time, while it is cynical, it is about making money. Like it is also really cool because with Star Wars, there's always this vast, expansive world. This like idea of this world about limits and these endless characters populating it. So that's very much what this is about as well, beyond any Disney wanting to make money reasons. So yeah, it is cool. And I like the fact that there's such diversity on show as well. There, there's a really cool shot of a Lady X-Wing pilot, which I really appreciated. Um, I'm not sure if you saw that. It was in Entertainment Weekly, and I'm not sure I put that link in the notes. Yeah, um, I to the making Star Wars one. She wasn't in there. Oh, boo. I'll have to send that to you. Sorry, that was dereliction of duty. But yeah, it's just a badass lady X-Wing pilot and she's blonde and she looks really cool, which makes me happy. Right, and then the next thing is that there has been an excerpt from Catalyst, which is a Rogue One prequel novel. I was wondering, had you had a chance to read this? I have, yeah. Mm. Um, What did you make of it? Well, Krennic is cold. Mm. Um, I didn't feel like I learned a lot about the other characters. Maybe I need to go back and reread it, but Krennic came across quite well. Like, I felt like he's going to be a very interesting character. Mm. Um, and, yeah, almost seemed bloodthirsty. Yeah. You know, killing people to make an example of them and, oh, this is war, like, using it as an excuse to kill people needlessly. Mm. So, I mean, I could probably guess already that he's going to die in this film. But yeah. it kind of makes root for that more. <laughs> Yeah, no, he definitely came across as like very hateable to me. Like, I didn't like him interacting with Baby Jin. Yeah, it's like, uh, get away from the baby, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit skeevy and creepy. Um, like, just because you can sense that this person is very evil and very untoward. Um, I, I always like have problems with that kind of setup, though, because they're obviously going to this idea where Galen and Krennic know each other on a personal level. And it does almost seem transparent to me that Krennic is, like, evil. Like, he, he's just clearly not a nice person. And I'm kind of like, how are you going to make this relationship work without making Galen seem, like, a bit stupid almost? Like, like is he going to be duped by it? Like, is he going to believe that he's working with these people for, like, altruistic reasons rather than, like, creating a big death weapon? <laughs> like, yeah, they're going to have to really sell that to me because I... I do have this habit of judging characters according to how intelligent they behave. Um, yeah, it, it does come across like he would be a bit naive. I mean, whether he's forced into it or manipulated or whatever, but yeah, like you say, it wouldn't be hard to work out, hey, I'm working with the Empire, maybe this isn't going to be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, even the costumes look evil. <laughs> it's like they're space Nazis. Although, to be fair, the characters in the universe do not have the concept of Nazism to correlate this with. So I can forgive them for that. Um, it's very much a case of the audience being in a position of privileged knowledge, because obviously we have so much Star Wars precedent to go on when it comes to these kinds of things. So that informs all our judgments and our perceptions. Um, but yeah, that does mean that they need some clever writing to make us buy these characters and not just constantly judge them like assholes because <laughs> I'm probably going to be the asshole judging them but to be fair I do think that from what we've seen in the trailers for Rogue One and especially the latest trailer 
I definitely think that we're going to get answers as to why Galen works with the Empire to do this. Like, says the implication that he does it for Jin's behalf somehow. Um, so I'll be interested to see how they portray that. Yeah, I think they're setting up the story to have that explored. Mm. So I think we'll get our answers. But it almost it seems like it's going to play into that that classic idea of a scientist um, thinking from a purely theoretical and oh wow, wouldn't it be cool if I could explore how this thing will work and not really thinking of the consequences of it, mm-hmm. like how it would be applied in the real world. Yeah, no, I think that's probably what they're going to go for. Like a bit like nerdy science guy going along making these incredible cool inventions and like almost just like not having the imagination to think of the evil that could be done with it. So yeah. obviously you have a certain kind of creativity in being able to come up with this invention in the first place. But there are limits to that maybe in terms of his understanding of human nature and the evil twisted things that humans can do to each other um which i think is unfortunately what can happen if a scientist is just a really nice person and can't get into the mindset of a really horrible person and how they'd want to misuse what they created yeah i feel like that's that's kind of where they're going i mean it could be wrong but that's how it seemed to me Mm. i think the main thing i got from the excerpt in terms of like relevance to the actual movie is that it probably gives us our closest sense of how old Jin is going to be in the movie in the film um because she's obviously like an infant in that excerpt and I believe it happens yeah no it does happen in the Clone Wars because they're talking about separatists and all those other lovely prequel era things so I think that puts her between like 20 and 23 which is actually quite significantly younger than I thought because I was thinking she'd be playing closer to Felicity's actual age, which is 30 or 31. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was a bit surprised by that. Yeah, me too. I mean, it, it kind of it keeps it consistent with how previous Star Wars heroes and heroines have been. Mm. But like you say, the actress is a little older, so I wondered if they were changing that up a little bit. Um, and, and she seems much more jaded than Luke or Ray is when we meet them. Yeah, no, I think um, that's presumably going to play back into this whole idea of her having been on her own for so long, which was brought up in the first trailer. I think they say she's been on her own since she was 15. Um, So I get the impression kind of like that she's a bit of a street rat character and that she's been forced to grow up like really early and really young. That in itself has raised the question of what happened to Jin between her being this young child who looks to be about eight hiding in the grass watching her father face off of Krennic and her being 15 at which point we're told that she's suddenly on her own so like what happened to her in those intervening years she was presumably with someone but the trailer is indicating that that someone was not her father so it's like who was looking after her in that time I'm very curious well we don't have any idea of what happens to her mum yet do we no we don't but I think we were saying last time about the all the evidence indicating that she's going to be fridged and fridged quite early um, because there's that whole thing of Mad saying that we see Jin when she's four, eight and a grown-up, played by Felicity. I think the impression we were getting was that her mum probably only appears when Jin is four and then dies, um, which is pretty bleak. So I don't think her mum's going to be looking after her. Like, I think she's gone. I was hoping that that would mean that her mum was with her until she was 15, but we just wouldn't 
actually see that because we've already been told that Felicity wouldn't be doing a flashback to when Jin was 15. Mm. But you're probably right. Probably another dead mother in Star Wars. Probably got a whole mortuary full of them. Very depressing. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we will see in time. I, I have actually seen it suggested that um, Saw Guerrera might actually have had a hand in looking after Jin. And that might be her connection to him. Like, presumably she, like, encountered him when she was very young and he took her under his wing. Which might explain some of her attitude because, from what I understand, the Clone Wars saw is meant to be this very jaded, cynical person. So if he had actually kind of looked out for Jin and been there for her until she was 15, then that might make sense as to how that had rubbed off on her own personality. Yeah, that's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it does explain that a bit more. I'd like to see that happen, but we will see. Um, right, I think on that note, we are done with news. And that means it's time to get onto our spotlight section, which this time is going to be a delve inside J.J. Abrams' mystery box. So it's very, very exciting. Um, the mystery box is obviously something of a nebulous concept. The best way to familiarise yourself with it is to listen to JJ's TED talk, where he essentially outlines where this whole idea came from. And the what I got is that JJ, as a child, he was given this box from a, a magic shop, and it was just had mystery box written on it. And JJ found this absolutely fascinating, and he never opened the box. And the whole idea is that the wonder and the excitement all comes from the possibility of what might lie within the box rather than what's actually inside the box so the anticipation and the not knowing that is what is appealing and exciting to him as a as a filmmaker and that's what he prioritizes almost more than what is actually there so there's a sense of the mystery the questions being more important than that answers um do you think i've summed that up adequately kirsty yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I have really conflicted feelings about the mystery box. <laughs> it depends on my mood for the day. Mm. Because I completely get where he's coming from. Um, it is exciting and you, you anticipate something and maybe the reality would be a letdown, right? So you build up this idea of something and then people wonder about it. But mm. you can only really start a story that way. Like, there have to be answers at some point. And I know that The Force Awakens is the first of a trilogy. Like, you know. So he's mm -hmm. he's very good at setting up this idea. And we have endless questions about almost all of the characters and all of the situations and their motives and what's happening. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm really undecided on whether it's an effective tool of storytelling. I think it all goes back to the fear that was associated with Lost. Because obviously Lost, it started out as this incredible phenomenon and everyone was absolutely fascinated by the idea of this plain load of people landing on an island and that in itself being a mystery, all of the characters in their own right being mysteries and there's just all these incredible questions that create all this excitement and intrigue which made it a really compelling show for the first season. But then obviously as it went on and on and on, it just kind of petered out and it became increasingly obvious that the showrunners had no idea what they were doing and JJ himself I believe he was only involved like at the very beginning of Lost so for the pilot and maybe a few episodes in the first season 
and then he just completely left to do other things. So JJ essentially established all these mysteries and then left before any of them could be answered. And when they were answered and lost, it was in the most horribly unsatisfying and frustrating way conceivable, which made many, many people feel very cheated and betrayed. And I think because of that, people almost are afraid of the same situation repeating with Star Wars. Because in a way it's similar. They have JJ and he came in to kick kick everything off to establish the mysteries. But now he's gone. He's going away. He's still like an executive producer. But that's pretty hands off. Like there's going to be many, many people involved with episode eight and episode nine above him who are really going to be the ones calling the shots and deciding where things go. So, yeah, it's very much like a lost situation where it's all been established. But now where does it go? Like, is there anything inside the mystery box? And I think many people have this very real and very understandable and sympathetic fear that there isn't. And... Yeah, I, I can understand why that frightens people. Yeah, I am really hoping that it's a very different situation from Lost. Um, mm. I didn't, I didn't watch Lost the whole way through, um, but that always seemed to me more like a serial as opposed to a trilogy that should already be mapped out to an extent. Mm. Like they should already have a desired outcome, and then it's just a case of each director and writer coming in to get from A to B, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and to be fair, I do think we've been reassured on multiple occasions that that is what we're getting, the sequel trilogy, that everything has been mapped out. When we were at Celebration, there was obviously lots of talk about all the story meetings that everyone had been involved in and about how Ryan, JJ and all the story group had like got together and basically plotted out the whole flow of the sequel trilogy. So in theory, they know exactly what they're doing and where they're going. And that should reassure us. I suppose the main thing that worries me potentially is, are they going to have the conviction to stick to that despite like the reactions of fans and how these films play out with audiences when they're actually released into the wild? Like, are they going to remain committed to that concept of the story that they decided on? Is that being their end game? I think they really have to, because mm. one, I do not agree with making things so heavy on fan service that it changes the writer's intent. Like maybe small changes, like we heard after The Force Awakens that they were making smaller roles a bit bigger because some certain characters caught on and were a lot more popular than they maybe anticipated. Mm. But if they're going to change fundamental things, that's dangerous because you don't then have those foreshadowing elements in the earlier narrative. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, It's really important because obviously the most laughable elements of the original trilogy now are the things that betray the lack of forward planning. So like Luke and Leia kissing and Luke saying, she's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) All these awful, cringeworthy situations where they're basically a brother perving unknowingly on his sister. It's almost like a U-rated version of Tis a Pity She's a Whore or something. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just, it's gross. And George Lucas obviously never wanted that. If he had known that Luke and Leia were going to be siblings when he started, no way would he have like had Luke like having a massive crush on her. I hope and... not. 
<laughs> yeah, one would seriously hope, wouldn't they? Yeah, and it's all those kinds of things. And it's almost like the original trilogy for all the great, great things it does. It's also a cautionary tale in why it's important to plan. And I really hope that the sequel trilogy has learned from that. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, I, I think that they must have because that would be a hugely conscious thing for Lucasfilm, right? Mm. Like the dynamic between Luke and Leia is something of a laughing stock. You know, like you say, you can love the original trilogy, but no one can look at that and think that it's a strength of those movies. I think, you know, I've I've seen people say, oh, well, I think that, you know, Ray's parentage might have changed as they were starting and starting production and filming. Mm-hmm. I I really hope that that's not the case. I don't believe it is because mm-hmm. that is so fundamental to the character, to the other characters, to how she interacts with everyone else that she meets. Mm-hmm to where her, her story is going, I, you know, that's the kind of thing that really should have been mapped out from the early stages. And I'm not talking about, like, Michael Arndt's treatment. Mm-hmm. Obviously, things mm-hmm. will change. You know, those kind of things will have been evolving. But once you start filming and you have those interactions down, that's, you know, that's too late. Yeah, no, totally. Um, that's essentially how I feel. They've already laid this groundwork for a certain story that is going to unravel going forward. And they can't really betray that at this point by just completely ignoring it or undermining it. It's possible, of course, to take one seed that was planted and then do something different with it to what was originally intended. Because that's obviously what happened with the whole Darth Vader betrayed and killed your father thing in A New Hope. That was a really cool example of Lucas being able to go back, take a line that had meant something completely straightforward and direct, and actually give it this whole other meaning and depth. And it and it worked, it worked perfectly. So that was really cool and it functioned well. But you need to be very, very careful in doing that because there's only so many times you can get away with it. And yeah, uh, but I agree with you. I have confidence that they're not going to make those kinds of silly mistakes. And I, I also feel reassured because, again, at Celebration, the repeated message that we were getting was that Ryan Johnson is not going to be beholden to fan responses. That is all about telling the right story, that this story that was planned out the story group and JJ and Lawrence Kasdan. Like, it's going to be about remaining true to that and doing the characters justice and taking them on their journeys as they were conceived of from like a narrative and a character perspective and i think that's really great that's what i want to hear it's almost like when ryan johnson says that kind of thing that they're consciously trying to manage expectations mm-hmm. and not not in a way that oh it's not going to be as good as you think it's going to be but that this isn't about wish fulfillment for ev- each and every fan because one you can't please everyone mm-hmm. you know if you take a broad cross section of the star wars fandom everyone wants different things And people aren't even sure necessarily what they want because they're not the writers, you know? Mm. We're dealing with mythology here. And sometimes mythology, well, really, mythology should be about what you need rather than what you think you want. I mean, like you say, I I have faith. Um, It's just going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, But also, you know, we've had Pablo say things like, well, content is planned for the next 10 years. And obviously things aren't set in stone, but 
they're probably already thinking about what's going to happen in the trilogy after this. Mm. So they would already need to know, you know, have people fallen in love? Have they had children? Who's died? Mm. Like there'll there'll be certain things like that that they will probably already know and be planning, maybe even discussing with Disney execs, that sort of thing. Yeah, so we've had yeah. comments from Bob Iger recently as well, haven't we? That they're going to continue with the trilogies. The Star Wars stories are going to keep coming out. They they don't have plans to stop after these few years. It's going to be a long term thing. Oh yeah, no, totally. They very much want to keep this baby rolling. Like again, it's for money making reasons. But like you say, these movies have to be good. They're to make money, so they need to have substance to them, and they need to make some kind of sense in themselves. And obviously, Star Wars is the closest thing that cinema has to mythology. Like, it really is like this crucial narrative through line for, across decades of popular culture. And it's so cherished and valued that there's this real extra weight to it in the way that there isn't a weight to, say, Iron Man 5 or something. Because the story for Iron Man 5 can be like quite formulaic and just like off the conveyor belt, so to speak. And no one would really mind as long as it's a good spectacle and it's fun and it's zippy and it makes you feel good. But with Star Wars, there almost has to be more to it than that. There has to be like weight and it has to challenge you in a certain way. It can always be about appeasing you or fulfilling your expectations. It has to also be about telling this mythology that feels honest and genuine in a way that something that completely satisfies what you wanted from it can't achieve yeah i agree i mean you know we talk about what we might want from a trilogy but you don't you don't know until you have it what you want mm. and you know there's a reason that fan fiction exists <laughs> and at the same time, we we have this huge mystery box, you know, people are endlessly debating who's Snoke, who are the Knights of Ren, why did Kylo fall, who are Rey's parents. In the meantime, there's lots of great fan fiction and theories being developed for that reason. So in a way, you can look at it from that perspective and think the mystery box is great because JJ says it represents infinite possibility, it represents hope, it represents potential. All of that's being explored right now. The only problem is some people and I fully admit that I'm doing this too, you kind of get attached to your own reading of the story and you want to see that come to fruition. And it's not going to be exactly the way everyone is envisioning it because we're all having drastically different personal ideas of what the story will be. Yeah, no, definitely. It's really, really interesting, to be honest, to see what's happened to Star Wars fandom since The Force Awakens has come out because it's almost like mystery box on steroids all of a sudden, like, it's all this speculation to a radical, radical degree that would just almost be inconceivable with any other property. But because it's Star Wars and there's already this massive investment and this huge fan base, then you have people absolutely fixated with these questions. So if you go onto the Star Wars speculation subreddit, then there's people there just endlessly posting theories about who are Ray's parents? Who's Snoke? Will Kyla be redeemed? Like, it's like, it's almost like Groundhog Day with Star Wars theories. Because yeah. <laughs> you go there on any day of the week 
I can get, almost guarantee you'll have one of each. Like a Ray Fury, a Snoke Fury, a Kylo Fury. And then with like a smattering of other stuff as well. Um, but in a way, that is a sign of how genius it was that they got JJ like in to do The Force Awakens to begin with. So I'm sure this is totally what they wanted. They wanted to cultivate maximum engagement from the fan community. Yeah. And they have achieved that probably beyond anything they could have hoped for. People are analysing the minutiae of The Force Awakens to an extent that is almost incredible. That, like, I haven't seen of any other film or any other fandom. Um, maybe I'm a bit sheltered, but, like, people are literally reading into the cutting, the lighting, the costume design, like, all these different elements. And I think it's valid and I think it's fascinating and it's really interesting to see how people are trying to like pick apart every tiny aspect of it to get answers but it does also raise that fear again that the expectations for this are so high because people are so incredibly invested in these mysteries that the answer really has to be pretty damn good like in order to work and in order for the mystery to be justified yeah and it obviously it's been a financially savvy decision for them as well because Mm. people went to see the film repeatedly because they weren't quite sure what they were seeing and that's quite interesting because it's not the most complex of narratives it's actually pretty simple Mm. but you're not really given enough information as to you know what all the characters know what their motives are why someone's doing something so it's like you're watching something play out and not having any real understanding as to why it's happening and you know we'll get the answers in two years but in the meantime it's driving everyone crazy so again you know you have all of this side canon material like the novelizations the storybooks the comics um and people are buying all of it to try and get the answers to something that arguably the film probably could have given us could have given us a little bit more i do sometimes wonder if they went too far with it like in absolutely bombarding us with all these mysteries, like about every little facet of everything, it seems. Um, and it also doesn't help that there's also this idea of the unified canon with everything in every published material from Lucasfilm apparently being like reflective of this final vision of what the story is and where the characters are. And yeah, it's all meant to be connected now. And that sends people on this treasure hunt for information and clues across all these different novels and like published materials and even Twitter feeds in the case of <clears throat> Pablo Hidalgo. Um, but yeah, it's almost like how much is there to this really? Like, are we just kind of being played? Like, is it just a means of getting our money and stringing us along until the next film comes out? Or is there an actual like trail of breadcrumbs be left for us to follow. Is there going to be a genuine reward here? Um, <laughs> I hope so. Um, Same. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, we're really enjoying it in the meantime, so maybe that should be enough, right? Mm. Like, it's not... None of this is real. Yeah. I, obviously, that's... Everyone knows that and understands that, but it should be about the enjoyment that we're getting out of it. And if people are taking it maybe a little too seriously... I don't know. I don't know what the end of that sentence is. Um, (laughs) No, no, it's fine. Um, And and I think that's actually a really good point because that just goes back to the whole point of Mystery Box, doesn't it? This whole idea 
that the anticipation of what might be in there is actually the best bit. That's better than any answer you could possibly get. And I definitely think that's what they're playing off. Because, yeah, like you say, look at how much like fun and engagement people are getting from this whole wild experience that is Star Wars fandom post The Force Awakens. Like, people are absolutely diving into it in a way that I don't think they have before. And it's just creating this remarkably deep level of investment. And that's also great from a commercial point of view. But it is also good for the fans in that it gives them something that feels very rich to experience and to discuss with others. And I think at the end of the day, whatever is inside the mystery box, and I don't doubt that there are things inside, we are going to get answers. We are going to be told like approximately who Ray's parents are, who Snoke is. And of course we're going to find out if Kylo will be redeemed or not. That's going to be the crucial thread for his character, one would imagine. Um, but the only real question is, will those answers satisfy individuals? And of course they're never going to satisfy every individual. That's impossible. But at the same time, I think it's possible for them to satisfy a large majority and even surprise people who had thought that they'd only accept one outcome to the mystery by giving them another answer that is an answer that actually reveals itself to be extremely satisfying despite what they had hoped for. So I kind of hope that's what happens because no one imagined the Vader reveal before that came. Like I'm sure people were speculating about who Vader was and exactly what had gone down between Vader and Luke's father and so on and so forth but I'm almost certain that no one or hardly anyone guessed that Vader was Luke's father but obviously that reveal it hit everyone like a ton of bricks and it's become an absolutely iconic moment so that's the ultimate case of audiences loving something without actually wanting it and without even conceiving of it as a possibility so I definitely think it's possible for the mystery box to contain great surprises. And yeah, I I just really hope it does. I'm sure some people will guess what's inside, but I doubt anyone will get it exactly. And I hope that the people who thought they were going to get something else are still going to be satisfied. Yeah, and to people who might not have loved The Force Awakens as much as they wanted to, Mm. or as much as others did, I, I loved it. Mm. I'm excited to see where the story's going but hopefully by the time we have the whole story it will have allowed people to appreciate The Force Awakens more. If Mm. everything lines up and it's brilliant storytelling and there are these foreshadowing elements it it will work really well. People will go back and appreciate those moments in that movie more than they can imagine right now because we don't have the answers Mm. and it seems so obscure but it will revise our understanding of that film. And I think, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I think in hindsight, it's going to look less like A New Hope for people than they think right now. Yeah, no, definitely. That's kind of how how I feel, because there was obviously lots of disappointment with The Force Awakens, because many people have felt that it's very derivative, which I can totally understand. I see where people are coming from when they say that. But... At the same time, I don't think it's a completely founded criticism at this stage because we don't know what comes afterwards. And this film has always been conceived of as the first of three films. And so it's 
difficult to judge it completely on its own terms because it would be like judging a new hope completely on its own terms and that doesn't really work now given what star wars has become it did work back in 1977 when stars had just come out and no one had any idea that the empire strikes back was coming but i'm sure that the experience of watching the force awakens is going to be very very different in 2019 after episode 9 comes out people are going to look back at force awakens and they're going to perceive things in a completely different way and i think that's really exciting and that goes back to the importance of planning because if they plan things well that will be really really rewarding to go back and watch it again and really appreciate like all those link ups like i'm sure they're going to be very subtle but they should be there and for the careful viewer the person who cares about having this being a cohesive story that makes sense as a whole then that would be a really good experience to go back to it yeah i i guess i just think of the force awakens as a really great prologue mm. it sets things up beautifully it gets you so excited for what's coming but that's the thing it is all about what's coming everyone is desperate to know what happens next and that that to me is a sign of success but I also completely sympathise with people who find it frustrating. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I pretty much agree with that. Um, it's in my opinion, the worst possible thing anyone could have felt was indifference. And I find very few people who feel indifferent towards The Force Awakens. You find people who really hate it, which I don't understand, but hey-ho. But I find that kind of passionate, strong emotion much more easy to understand. And actually almost much more flattering to the film itself than just not caring would be, than, than like apathy. Because if you felt apathetic towards it, then there's just not much there to care about. But if you feel angry and betrayed by all the awful things it's done to the saga and betraying Lucas's vision, then that's because you care. And that's also because the film has done certain things that have shocked you and upset you and disturbed you. And in that way, it's provoking you. And I'm the opinion that all art should provoke. Because as far as I'm concerned, Star is art. Like, all cinema is art. And I think it's probably one of the most successful pieces of art in human history. Because no other art has been able to capture the imagination quite like Star Wars has. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, like I said before, I hope that those people who are disappointed will feel better about it by the end of the trilogy mm. no absolutely um so obviously we have these various items shall we say inside the mystery box and i was just thinking it might be fun to go through what's in there at the moment and what we think might actually be inside so essentially we're going to look at the mysteries themselves what the prevailing impression might be at the moment and then what we think the reveal might actually be. I thought it might be quite a fun exercise. This is so, quite dangerous because I feel like coming back to this in two years, people might think, oh, you got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we are almost certainly going to get things wrong. But I think that's okay. Everyone is going to get things wrong. And if we put the disclaimer that you're not all-knowing, omnipotent gods, then we should be good. Yeah. Um, We're just fans like everyone else. So. Exactly. It's not like we have a privileged position of knowledge. So we're just speculating on based on what we've read and what we saw in The Force Awakens. So, 
obviously, perhaps the main mystery is such is Ray's parentage. So, whose child is she, essentially? What do you think, Kirsty? I choose to believe JJ when he says it's no one who's in The Force Awakens. Mm. Um, and it helps that that was my original reading anyway. Mm. Like, his statement just seemed to back up what I, what I was already interpreting the film as. Um, mm. No one seemed to recognise her. No one seemed to be looking for a lost daughter. Mm. Um, so, that that to me kind of clears it up in terms of who we already know. Mm-hmm. And it, and then that leads me to believe it's more about what happened to her parents as opposed to who they might actually be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's got to be something that connects her to Snoke in some way because he's the big bad here, right? Mm. Like there has to be something bigger than Kylo Ren because she's already kicked his ass. Uh, yep, yeah, no, totally. I definitely think there has to be some kind of link there so it has to be personal for Ray. like she has to be engaged with that fight against Snoke if that is ultimately what the sequel trilogy is going to become which is what I expect it will although I'm sure there's going to be some cards at their sleeves when it comes to the whole Snoke thing um, so I can see him being like the architect of Ray's misery so to speak um, and that being an element of the mystery um, I must say when I first saw Force Awakens probably for my first free viewings maybe I, I was pretty sure that Ray was Luke's daughter pretty sure um so I can completely sympathize with and understand anyone who thinks she's a Skywalker because for my first few watches I did as well and I do think that there are things in that film that are designed to like insert that thought in your mind I wouldn't oh, say okay. that they're like proof or anything but there's like all these suggestions and all these like little teases um that like throw ray skywalker at you um and it's almost to the point where i think that can't be the answer because why would they make the answer of this big intriguing mystery something that everyone and their grandmother can guess because literally everyone i've seen the film with who has pretty much always been like casual fans they have all said they think Ray is a Skywalker. Mm-hmm. And if this is a thought that is entering the minds of the general public, which it clearly is, because when you look at polls online, that's exactly the same results that you find most frequently. Um, and I think, I just don't see them doing that. I don't see them satisfying that expectation. Because if we're going to honour the spirit of the Empire Strikes Back without being beholden to the letter, then I don't see them having another parentage reveal and not another Skywalker parentage reveal. Especially not because it's one that everyone has already guessed. I think there is going to be a reveal concerning Rey's background in history, but I think it's going to be more about why she was left in this awful situation rather than who her parents are themselves. Yeah, I agree. Um... And like I, I think that the red uh, Ray Skywalker theory was consciously presented as a red herring. Mm. So I like to say there are things in the movie that make you wonder that way, but they just seemed a bit too obvious and on the nose for me. So it seemed like they were intentionally trying to lead people in that direction. But to me, that serves a purpose beyond Ray. Like I, I feel like they wanted to lead people into thinking that she was a Skywalker. 
so that it wasn't fully appreciated that Kylo Ren is the Skywalker of this generation. Mm. Because then, you know, you almost think, well, he has to be redeemed, right? Yeah. No, it's I mean, true. Like, um, if Rey is not a Skywalker and Kylo is the last one, then it would appear to make the prospect of his redemption much, much more likely. Because do we really think that Disney is going to let that bloodline die out? Like, on a purely cynical level. I've used the word cynical so many times. Um, I just don't see that happening. I think it would have to continue in some way. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right in that it may well be a misdirect to disguise like where they're going to go with Kylo Ren because the question of where Rey comes from implicitly has implications where Kylo comes from. Um, but at the same time, I, I do like to... I really hope it's not just about that. There needs to be actual substance to oh. Rey's backstory as well. It can't just be about fading what happened with Kylo. But I do think that probably fed into it. Yeah, I think we'll have those answers, but I just don't think it's anything that anyone at the moment can guess because it's going to be part of this story. Mm. It's not going to be about looking back and linking her. Well, you know, this is just my opinion, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be about linking her to someone we already know. It's about it being a mystery right now because it's going to be important to the plot of this trilogy. Mm. So we're going to get the answers, but it's not really about her coming in as the, the Skywalker saviour and, and solving all the problems for a family that she doesn't even know. That's the thing, right? It's like, this, people thinking that this is her family, well, they abandoned her. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, would she want to become part of that family? I know she's looking for a family right now, but if it turns out that Luke is her father, how does that change what we think about Luke? Mm -hmm. You know? So, I, I agree that that is part of the mystery box. Um, and... It's just a debate about why that is. Yeah, no, exactly. I think um, they're very much trying to make us think in one direction when it comes to that, when I believe they're going to be going in another. Um, and that's and that, that is going to be one of the main surprises. Um, and then, obviously, with the mystery box, what else do we have inside? Let's see. Um, we also have Smoke, of course. Like, because he's probably the other hot topic besides Ray's parentage. Um, and I really think this is one element of the mystery box where people are probably going to be disappointed. So I think people really, really want there to be some kind of, like, profound link to, like, a previous character, like Plagueis or something with Snoke. And Pablo Hidalgo has already said that he's a new character and so did Andy Serkis. Yeah, no, exactly. I think they've pretty much spelled it out, but it's interesting from the point of view of the discussion because obviously so many people are convinced there has to be some kind of like mystery with Snoke in that he's like his identity is going to be some kind of big bombshell. But my dad, bless him, I I love him to bits, but he's convinced that uh, Snoke is Anakin. <laughs> oh. And I know, um, and he brings it up every time I see him. And I'm like, Dad, he really isn't. And he says, but but he has the same scar on his forehead. And it's like, no, it's, it's not the same. <laughs> it's so demoralising. Oh, I love him, but yeah, it breaks my You're breaking my heart, Dad! <laughs> oh. People have the theories, and that's fine. Like, that's what we're doing, too. I think 
maybe stupid furious heartbroken if they get they get it wrong because it's it's a question of pride as well right if you hold on to a head cannon for two years and it turns out to be completely wrong mm. you're gonna foolish i know i would yeah no same i think that's the pitfall we all fear like getting into essentially um and we're all gonna be victims in some way none of us are gonna have all our predictions right so it's gonna be something where like oh darn it i'm really <laughs> really annoyed um but i like to think that everyone will be satisfied to some degree but yeah, I think the vast majority of Snoke theorists probably going to be let down. I, I think with Snoke, I reckon he might be what is buried underneath the surface of Jakku. Because in the Aftermath series of novels by Chuck Wendig, there's this whole mystery surrounding the Emperor having this big like excavation project on the surface of the planet because something is meant to be buried there, something very mysterious and important. And I think that is probably going to be tied to Snoke somehow. Um, it's just speculation, but I kind of think that would make sense to me. And I, can, and I, can, and I also find it more likely that they will explore Snoke's origins in that way, more in the novels than in the films, because... It's not like they can have Snoke sit down and deliver a monologue about how he entered the picture. I think that story is really going to be mostly saved for the accompanying materials and books. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think that's something that the general audience is hugely obsessed with either. Mm. I think it's mostly hardcore fans that are developing all of these different theories. Um, because, you know, like Palpatine in the original trilogy, you don't really learn much about him. It's only in the prequels when you see him seducing Anakin mm. but I don't think there was this huge I could, I could be wrong but was there this huge desire to know more about him or was it okay that he was a mystery that not everything needs to have this long-winded answer and explanation and origin story is this the emperor yeah <laughs> I, I know that um during the prequel era some people convinced themselves that Sidious was not Palpatine which <laughs> oh, <my laughs> is really funny when you think back in retrospect because he he might as well be like wearing like a chain with like um Palpatine written on it because he's so transparently Palpatine. Yeah, um, it's really obvious in the prequels. <laughs> it's the same actor. For <laughs> exactly. It's, it's like you think that he was just like wearing a Palpatine-like mask for the lols. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's dumb. Um, but. To be fair, I think that was just the hardcore fans. I doubt that was the general public engaging in that. I suppose I probably have a skewed perception of how much interest there is in the mystery of Snoke because I just go and look at the hit count on the Mace Windu is Snoke video and I see like 5 million views or something and it's like, oh. <laughs> and then like I die a little inside. Um, but people can watch those videos without getting invested in it, you know, like whether it's right or not it can just be entertainment in the meantime oh yeah no it's true but i just think that the fact that these videos have millions of views it does indicate that there is extensive interest in that as a mystery like i said i, I don't think there is much for mystery to snoke i in that there's not going to be some like massive twist where like my dad gets what he wants and snoke is anakin <laughs> but that would be awful it really would be horrible in so many ways <laughs> can you imagine like Kylo's been there this whole time, like talking to Darth Vader's charred mask. And like all the time his grandfather was there, the freaking massive hologram. 
and he was too dumb to notice. It would make him look like an idiot. Yeah. Another Snoke theory I've seen is that he's Darth Maul because <laughs> obviously hardcore fans know that Darth Maul survived the Phantom Menace. Mm. But most people only watch the movies. So he is dead in the general audience's mind and it would seem absolutely ludicrous for him to be alive now. So you can bring him back you can bring him back in Rebels and you know you can get away with that even though I think it's a bit it's a bit silly because he was cut in half. But it wouldn't work for the general audience because then you'd have to have all of this explanation for how he survived and why he cares so much about seducing the last Skywalker and I don't know. The point is I've seen very few Snoke theories that I think are actually going to pan out. Obviously only one will pan out, but yeah. But this, that's the thing, right? There's the mystery box. There's so little to go on with Snoke. Mm-hmm. You know, all we really know is that he's a humanoid, that Leia seems to have some idea of who he is, or at least that he was there seducing her son, you know, for years. Mm. But then what else is there? We don't know if Luke knew him, if he knew what was going on, why he's doing what he's doing, what his goal is. You know, I've seen all these theories about how he might be trying to destroy the Force or whatever, but it comes from nowhere. It's just people blindly speculating, and that's fun. Mm. We can all indulge, but there's nothing in the story to indicate anything right now. I do think Snoke is the, perhaps the most likely candidate to be the empty box of Star Wars mysteries. Um, but yeah, we will see. Um, right, and then I guess in mystery box, let's see. You also have the whole Finn and Ray dynamic, like, and I guess it's kind of a mystery because they're established as this very strong pairing in The Force Awakens. They spend much of the film together and they get very, very close. And by the end of that film, they mean the world to each other. Um, and there's also hints of attraction there, um, especially from Finn towards Rey, in my opinion. Um, and this has seen a lot of people think that there's going to be a romance there going forward. Like a friend of mine actually said the other day, just flat out that I like the romance of souls, like Finn and Rey. Um, so she was already making the jump from what are more like seeds to full-blown romance. That's what she sees in The Force Awakens based on the groundwork that was laid with those characters. Um, but obviously since the film has come out, there's been various like comments and indications that that isn't where they're going. Um, because we've had John Boyega say things like, no, we weren't playing Finn and Rey for romance, for example. And in the same interview, which I think was with Variety, it was around the time of the Cannes Film Festival, so around May, I think. Um, and yeah, around the same time, John also said that the romance won't go in the way you think it will. So that implies there's going to be some kind of twist or something unexpected there. So what are your thoughts on this, Kirsty? Yeah, it's hard to know if that's actually part of the mystery box in mm. quotation or whether it's just... I don't know. I think it might have something to do with the marketing that was going on before The Force Awakens, where they were kind of implying through the trailers and imagery mm. that Finn was going to be the Jedi. Mm. Um, so obviously we see him holding the saber throughout the film, and he fights Kylo and everything. So it's not like it was a lie to have him featured like that. 
but they must have known that that would lead people to believe that he was going to be the force sensitive Jedi. Mm. Um, and I don't know what people were thinking about Rey. Um, but the fact that we now have two protagonists and it looks like they're going to be leading up the two different sides of the story. Mm. Um, that to me is the biggest indicator that there won't be a, a romance between these two characters. Could be wrong, obviously, mm. no. But the fact that they're both going to be protagonists means that neither is going to be a love interest. Mm. Um, and it's possible that they can write a character that isn't confined to that role. You know, always people should be more than that if, mm. they're, if they're doing the writing well. But I just can't see them spending an awful lot of time together after episode seven. Mm. Certainly not in eight, at least. You know, they'll probably be reunited in nine on a mission of something. You know, mm. we don't that far ahead yet. But the way that Ray leaves him in The Force Awakens shows that they're going to be separated for quite some time. It kind of, it seems to be heavily foreshadowed at that moment. Mm. I suppose, like, rather than being something in the mystery box, I guess, it's more like it was the fact that those two characters seem so crucial to each other's stories in The Force Awakens. Was that in itself a misdirect to distract people from what are actually going to be the core relationships for those characters going forward? Yeah, I think that also weaves into the Rey Skywalker theory, right? Mm. I think that Rey is the Skywalker, then she will have to have a love interest, and Finn is right there, and they get along great, you know, they have fantastic chemistry, so mm. why would that be the the path the writers take? Mm. But based on spoilers and based on how they seem to part at the end of the movie, for me, that doesn't seem like it's what's going to happen. Yeah, like I definitely think that they're preparing us subtly like with John's comments and stuff which they're only going to really register with hardcore fans who are paying attention to everything like us um, like that's almost preparing us to adjust our expectations because I think the actors and the crew behind these movies they have become acutely aware of all the expectations that have been built up like in this like interim period between the movies they can feel that pressure yeah. And I think that they are just gradually giving us these hints to steer us more towards the right mode of thinking. Because they know that when people are going to bleat and complain, they're going to bleat and complain the loudest when they're the hardcore fans, the fans that have really like fixated on particular concepts of what's going to happen. So by bringing them, them down a bit and like qualifying certain things and pointing certain things out to almost help people adjust their speculation that I almost sense they're trying to like avoid the oncoming storm if you will <laughs> yeah I I wasn't surprised by the content of the interview like I said I perceived their relationship as a friendship mm. but I was surprised that John was given the go-ahead it seems like to say these things because I thought it was a part of the misdirection that they were intending to take into the second film and I thought that they would want people to hold on to that idea. So, you know, I've seen people say, oh, well, he can't really spoil anything because he's under an NDA. So we, we shouldn't look into what he's saying. But the fact that he's under an NDA means that he was given explicit permission to say these things. Yeah, right? you'd, yeah no, you definitely think and hope for John's sake, because I don't like the thought of him being told off. He's too nice for that. Um, 
But yeah, no, you're right. Um, because everything is so closed down about this movie. You have poor Adam Driver just repeating the same comments. I love the script. The script <laughs> wasn't what I was expecting at all. And then you have Daisy saying, maybe, maybe. Like, and that's literally like the sum of their contributions, bless them. Um, and that's fine. I totally get it. They can't say anything. But yeah, when you have that context of the other actors being so closed down and then John coming out of like, oh yeah, no, we weren't playing it for romance. Going to go a different direction. Prepare yourselves. It, it does seem a bit too deliberate almost for that to be a slip up. So he was talking about it for like several paragraphs. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's not like he s- started saying something and then stopped himself when he realised he'd said too much. Yeah, it was almost like, and again, we're coming at this from quite a cynical perspective. It was like a PR agreement between the variety and hmm. John and his handlers, or or Lucasfilm, or whatever. It seemed like it was almost prearranged to adjust the expectation. He was talking freely. He didn't stop himself and say, oh, no, I've said too much there. Um, right. Do we have anything left to say on the mystery box, Kirsty? Is there anything left to unwrap, so to speak? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, we're both kind of coming at it from the there better be answers to this, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely my main takeaway. It's like I'm all well and good with the whole like anticipation and creating this intrigue around the potentialities that are hidden within this movie but there has to be some kind of satisfying resolution and I don't mean satisfying in the way that will give me a warm and fuzzy feeling inside I mean satisfying in the sense that will feel narratively justified and provocative and exciting and engaging that's what I want yeah I I think we'll get it it's just everyone's feeling the long wait right now yeah no I think it's the like it's the dip in the middle isn't it i hate to say it but i think people do just want rogue one to be out of the way so they can stop promoting episode eight and i know it's awful i know it's really sad but i know i feel that sometimes (laughs) the making star wars guys have said that too (laughs) you know and you know that they're sat on all these juicy details they they don't want to give us right now because like you say we'd have all the attention on rogue one and i'm looking forward to that movie yeah but nowhere near to the same degree as episode eight because there's not this mystery box surrounding it you know it's very much going to be a standalone film yeah no definitely i think that the mystery box of rogue one is like it's basically like a present that you only see on christmas morning and you unwrap it straight away and it's cool and awesome and it's right there in front of you. There's like no anticipation. But then the F- Force Awakens mystery box, like the whole sequel trilogy mystery box, is like a Christmas present that you see being wrapped in January because your mum bought something like just after Christmas in the sales. But you don't know what it is. And then she puts it away until the next Christmas. And you've got this <laughs> agonising wait. Where all these like questions enter your mind over what this present could be, and you just do not get the answers for an interminably long time, and it drives you insane. Yeah, that is what it's doing to all of us. <laughs> Lord only knows where we're going to be in six months' time. <laughs> Although to be fair, by then we should have a trailer at least. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah. If if not, wow, save us, please. <laughs> Send us spoilers. Um, 
Right, so I think that wraps up our spotlight section and we can move on to our next segment, which is It Came From Reddit. It's one of my personal favourites. Um, and in It Came From Reddit, we basically select a recent Reddit post that we find interesting or worthy of discussion in some way. And we discuss it and its potential implications and all the questions it throws up. So this time, it was basically just a nice little link to the American Film Institute's website. And it's basically an excerpt from a really cool interview of George Lucas back when the original Star Wars was released. And I felt it would be nice to read it out so it just highlights what the essence of Star Wars is, which I think can often get lost. So what we have is rather than do some angry, socially relevant film, I realised there was another relevance that is even more important. Dreams and fantasies. Getting children to believe there's more to life than garbage and killing. Once I got into Star Wars, it struck me that we had lost all that. A whole generation was growing up without fairy tales. You just don't get them anymore, and that's the best stuff in the world. Adventures in far-off lands. It's fun. And I guess for me, I just really like this, because I think people often forget that Star Wars is just a fairy tale with space paint on. Like, at its core, it really is like myth and folklore, and it's about optimism and hope. Like, it's much more about those things than it is like about scientific developments and the doom of mankind and yeah I just think it's nice to be reminded of that every now and again um what do you think about this quote Kirsty? That's pretty much how I feel too um I know that the Star Wars fandom has lots of sci-fi fans in it mm. sci-fi plays a part as you say this is a fairy tale set in space but the fairy tale and myth side of it is that's what appeals to me so that's what I'm going to put emphasis on but I also think that is more fundamental to understanding the narratives and the structures and the recurring motifs and why it can feel both familiar and fantastical at the same time mm -hmm. so when you watch The Force Awakens and you think oh this is just like a new hope this happens this happens and this happens it's not just about that superficial plot development but it's about the ideas and values that are being transmitted and that, that feeling of Star Wars and that feeling that what you're seeing is a story that's already been told for thousands of years. We're not actually seeing something new, but that's what makes it so important and resonates and why people love it so much. Yeah, no, totally. That's very much how I feel about Star Wars. For me, it always matters more as like an emotional story, like a story about people and humans and... Like, it sounds really corny, but, like, ultimately, like, love, like, conquering everything else, and, like, compassion being what truly matters and what's truly powerful. Like, perhaps the most moving moment for me in all of the original trilogy is when Luke just refuses to fight his father. Like, even though he's being tortured and there's an agony, like, he just refuses to give in. Like, and that's, like, how powerful and unconditional his love is. And the fact that this demonstration of that love is enough to motivate his father to turn back to the light side again. Like, that's not realistic. It's not something you can explain really in logical terms. But it makes complete sense on a human level, on an emotional level. And like Lucas says in this interview, it's all about offering hope. 
and offering like the prospect of like the most stark and evil eventuality that being overcome and there being a way out from that and I think that's so important especially when you look at how crappy the world can be like especially like right now there are awful things happening that to be fair there's always awful things happening at any point in history that you care to choose but there's always this bleakness and you need fairy tales you need hope in order to cope with that and it's not always about escapism either because it's also about having the sense that things can be better like and for some people that will actually change how they behave like in their everyday lives like because it's not like everyone i guess the real life analog to luke and vader is almost like if hitler had had a child and then hitler had become good again like because of that child's love would never ever happen and it's almost quite like an abhorrent thought because obviously you think of Hitler and you think of like absolute evil personified like that's reality and we know that can never happen in reality but in this realm of the fairy tale where it is all very much abstract and it's about symbolic value over literal realistic value in that realm then it has real value to tell a story like about evil being overcome and there being like hope for the hopeless if that makes sense definitely and i think this is something that has been fundamental to star wars from the beginning because george lucas was very open about his influences coming from people like joseph campbell mm. and he's talked extensively about mythology and why it's so important why it will always be important as you say there are always terrible things going on in the world and people need a guide to understanding how to live life and how to really experience it. Mm. So Campbell says that mythology is about deep inner problems, inner mysteries, thresholds of passage. Mm. And we need that guide to life, whether you get it from mythology and storybooks or things like religion and philosophy. Mm. You need something larger than yourself to look at your life and make sense of things. Yeah, no, definitely, which is, it goes back to the whole idea of all the characters being archetypes, doesn't it? Like Luke being like the young peasant boy, Leia being the noble princess, Han being the rogue. Those are all stock characters, but that's because they're more than just individuals. They are emblematic of other things. Like, and that's why we attach such importance to them, I think, because Luke isn't just one person. Luke can be many things to many different people. People attach to different facets of Luke and love Luke for different reasons. And he's special to them in different ways. And his people have different levels of attachment to that character based on their own experiences as well as the character's experiences. And there's something really vital about having a character like that where so many different people can latch onto him and like feel what he goes through, like as if it's almost their own emotions. So there's something extremely cathartic by the end of Return of the Jedi when you see Luke looking at the ghost of his father smiling on at him because people associate with these characters so strongly because they're so <clears throat> vital and emblematic of these larger like types of characters and types of people that it's possible to like project your own emotions 
onto the scenarios that the characters go through, even though they're absurd and exaggerated. There are like these raw elements of emotional truth and feeling embedded within them. And that's what people truly love, I think, about stars. Yeah, if you're talking about like archetypes, that again comes back to the Jungian influence on mm. the economy. So there's that concept of the collective unconscious. So everyone somehow holds these innate ideals as a collective. Mm. But when you look at a character like Kylo Ren, you you somehow intuitively understand him as Rey's opposite. Mm. He's her animus. Yeah. He's the shadow. He's a beastly shadow form. And it's kind of the same if you look at Luke's father as a cautionary tale he's kind of what Luke might have turned into if he'd fallen and instead he brings him back to grace mm. so you know I'm constantly kind of eye rolling at this idea of things needing to be set out as whether they're canon or not mm. because to me that kind of defeats the purpose of Star Wars as mythology mm. um, yeah. Does there need to be a right or wrong answer to everything? Does there need to be an answer in the first place? Like mm. with people's ideas of the force, with ideas of darkness and light, and those ideas are archetypes too. Mm. Do you need a full explanation for what the force is? Yeah, I like that's a problem that I encounter a lot. I find a lot of um, like rigidity in like the mindset of Star Wars fans. Like people often seem to seek logical answers and straightforward answers like the kind of answers you get in the labels of the visual dictionary which are very helpful i like them very much um but they can't convey like these deep emotional truths that the films themselves can and stories should convey because that's their responsibility to provoke you and to engage you on an emotional level like you can't look at Rey and Kylo dueling at the end of The Force Awakens and understand that on a logical level. It's not like Kylo sat out before they had that fight and plotted out all of his moves based on their relative strength and their weapons at the time and so on and so forth. It's, that's not the point of that scene. The point of that fight between them is the emotions that the characters are experiencing and how those channel into their actions and what they do and what they say to each other. So I was listening to Collider Jedi Council, for example, and they were talking about the moment when Kylo and Rey are on the cliff edge. And there's these beautiful, huge close-ups of their faces and they're just staring at each other. And Kylo in particular is just staring like fixedly at Rey like for no easily apparent reason and there's not much logic in that so the guy on Collider Jedi Council basically suggested that Rey had Kylo in a kind of force hold because that is a logical explanation if Rey were holding Kylo in a force hold then that would make sense why he was just standing still just looking at her doing nothing but I think the real explanation for that is the emotional one where he's feel, oh, brimming over with all these emotions and like this grief and this self-hatred and this anger and then this total fascination with this girl who's revealed these incredible powers before him and is just brimming over with all this potential and beauty and in that moment he's just captivated 
by it, he almost forgets himself. He almost forgets the situation that they're in, but that he should be fighting, that he should be thinking assertively. And then that's what gives her the opportunity to close her eyes, concentrate and fight back. Like that, for me, is how that moment makes sense in context. But I think for some fans, it's very difficult to engage with the material in that way. Does that make sense? No, it does. Um, I think there's been a lot of confusion as to how Rey was able to defeat Kylo. Because mm. if you're looking at it from a logical point of view, right, she's untrained and he's supposed to be this really powerful, dark villain. And you see how powerful he is at the beginning of the movie. He mm. only begins to unravel emotionally over the course of the film, but at the beginning we're shown that he's really powerful. And I think mm. that's intentional, right? We're supposed to have this expectation so that you're supposed to notice that he was defeated by someone who was untrained and wonder why. Mm. And that was an intentional decision by the filmmakers. And it comes back to this idea of it being myth as opposed to just an action hero movie. Mm. Or a superhero movie or you know, something like that where you're not, you're not really always encouraged to look deeper. Mm. But with mm. Star Wars, it's all about conveying these big, grand ideas through the characters. Mm. And another example for me would be Ray's abduction. Mm. And it's called Ray's abduction. And that to me is a loaded way of describing that scene. Because mm. we're given a point of comparison earlier in the movie when Kylo takes Poe or orders the stormtroopers to take him in for questioning. Mm. So it's almost like the filmmakers are inviting you to look at these two things, logically know that the same thing is happening, that someone is being taken for information but they're being presented very differently and you have to wonder why. Mm. Like the idea of abduction and being swept into someone's arms and taken onto a ship, that's, we've seen that before. Mm. That, that is something that exists in mythology and has done for thousands of years. And I think partly, again, coming back to the mystery box, it's being obscured at the moment and people aren't really thinking about why that is. Mm. And understandably, they're focusing on the fact that Kylo Ren is still doing a very bad thing in that moment. Mm. No one is defending the fact that he took Rey away and, you know, interrogated her for information. That's not the point. We're not saying he's secretly a good person for doing that. <laughs> it's a bad thing, but you need to wonder why, because the filmmakers did that very intentionally. Yeah, no, definitely. I think you really hit the crux of it there. It's, there are many, many scenarios and situations in The Force Awakens that are difficult to explain but I don't think that's really the filmmakers being stupid or not having explanations I think it's just that they have the wrong kind of explanation for some people yeah you need to approach Star Wars as like a fairy tale as a story told in broad strokes a story told in images and emotions and human relationships rather than a story told in terms of like battle stats and hit points and technical specifications. If you approach it from that perspective, you're going to really struggle to accept what you see. Um, but yeah, I think that was a really cool discussion. So thank you, Reddit. You are more than a hive of scum and villainy. Um, all right, we can move on now to questions. And our first question comes from Rupert on YouTube. And he said... Do you think Lucasfilm and Disney will be brave enough to allow Rey to be tempted by the dark side? Would this be a good idea? If it was temporary, or more than just a wobble, it could be interesting, I think. 
If that's how it goes, what do you think would push her that way? And what are the story opportunities? So, great question. What do you think, Kirsty? I would love to see Ray go to the dark side. <laughs> Same. I'm not attached to it because I'm not sure, like, like Rupert, I'm not sure that they will do it. But mm. the groundwork has definitely been laid. They could do it because... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this comes back to something that JJ revealed in one of his commentary things, um, that he was encouraged to put in extra shots of Ray looking particularly vicious when she was taking Kylo down. Mm-hmm. And you wonder, is that them saying, hey, she's not this pure beacon of light here. You know, she's almost enjoying this. Yeah, no, they really make her seem almost animalistic when she's pacing around Kylo at the end of their encounter it's really really striking to see to be honest it's like ooh, i get vibes from this um so yeah if anything makes me think she might turn to the dark side it's how she behaves like after that epiphany moment when she's tapped into the force and of course there's also the evidence from the novelization which basically has like this strange disembodied voice talking to her very heavily implied to be Snoke and the voice basically kill kill um, but she, she doesn't do it of course but that voice is there so that implies there is very much the temptation of the dark side within her which I find very intriguing yeah there's almost this idea as well that um, she's only interacted with another dark sider like she she hasn't encountered really that light side of the force. I know she heard about it from Maz, mm. but her powers were awakened as she was struggling with Kylo, as they were mm. going into each other's minds. And then again with this really, you know, like you say, animalistic, vicious fight. Um, it's almost like when she gets to Luke, he's going to want to know what the hell have you been learning? Mm. When Kylo says you need a teacher, it's almost like um, she already has one. You've already been teaching her, whether she realises it or not. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a really good point. Her groundwork in terms of force training is laid in the dark side, essentially, because it's all these things she picks up from Kylo's mind. And he's literally there, you need to teach her, you need to teach her. <laughs> um, so yeah, like basically Kylo got there first before Luke could. So that is her initial introduction to the force. Um, in a big way, in an active way. Obviously, she has Maz talking to her, but Maz is very much a neutral figure. She's not a Jedi, as she herself says. So that's not so much about swaying Rey to one side or the other. So I think there's definitely seeds laying in The Force Awakens to have Rey move towards that dark side influence, especially because if you compare to Luke in A New Hope, his mentor in The Force was Obi-Wan Kenobi, He literally had Obi-Wan Kenobi there giving him force training 101. And Obi-Wan was perhaps the most pure and steady Jedi you could hope to find. So great light side teacher. No wonder Luke was pretty confident about that. Um, And yeah, Rey lacks that. So there's very much room for her to not really take well to the Jedi training. Which I could definitely see leading to a slippery slope down to the dark side. Um, as for what I think might actually push her that way, I'd I'd imagine it would be tied to some kind of reveal about her background, something that would really distress her and make her angry and make her feel hopeless. So like finding out her parents had died like in a horrible way or something, 
and I could see that sending her over the edge, um, especially if there had been some conflict between her parents and the Jedi, which there isn't really any evidence for. But it would be a good motive for her to turn dark. She found out that her parents had some kind of like dark heritage that she in turn inherited. And that she would then seek to reclaim that after learning her history. And learning that the Jedi had a part in the downfall of her family. Yeah, I think if she's going to go dark, it has to be something like that. That um, really makes her sympathetic to the audience. Because she's still going to be the hero. Even if she goes dark, she's still the protagonist. And it's not... I don't think they're going to do a prequel-style slow descent into darkness with Rey. Like it, like you say, it has to be sympathetic. That's yeah. really important. And they can't, also can't show Rey going too far. It's like what we were saying earlier. Like, it'd be fine to show her murdering Uncopla. We would like her to murder Uncopla, I expect. <laughs> um, but you can't have her, like, go and massacre younglings a la, a la Anakin in Revenge of the Sith. Not unless you really want the audience to hate her and set her up as like the big bad of the sequel sequel trilogy, which I really don't think they're going to do. So I don't see them going that far with it. Yeah, there's not enough time in one trilogy to do a fall and descent, um, fall and redemption. It's kind of like the way, you know, we're coming into Kylo Ren's story and he's at his lowest point. You mm-hmm. know, he we don't know what happened at the massacre, but it's a massacre. There's nothing good that's coming out of that. <laughs> um, and yeah him kill his father so he's from my understanding and perception of the story he's being set up for a redemption mm. so that but it might not necessarily be smooth sailing so they could have this really interesting play between him and ray kind of influencing each other mm. light and dark wise you know yeah that's true you could almost see kylo moving closer back to the light as he sees ray descend further into the darkness and he almost sees a reflection of what happened to him in her mm. like if he saw that then maybe that would be his like holy shit moment and make him realize for good like how important it is that he gets out of that and like saves himself and in turn allows her to save herself by yeah. getting out of that i think but- there are lots of compelling story ideas um and i i don't buy this idea that disney would be afraid of having ray tempted by the darkness because mm. that's like a common theme for Star Wars, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost inevitable that she'll be tempted in some way. Because otherwise, where's where's the tension coming from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is it going to be, like, Ray and Luke, like, sat on Act 2 singing, Kamaya! <laughs> like, this imperfect peace and harmony. I, I don't see it happening. There has to be conflict. And I know for some people it might seem a bit derivative of where Rey were to go to the dark side because we've arguably seen that before in Anakin but I think it would be different in so many ways that it would feel very much fresh because it's something we never truly saw Luke struggle with he was pretty much always confident in the light like he had little wobbles but really really little ones like is in like being a bit naughty at Jabba's palace for example um it wasn't anything that severe um so yeah, I think that they're going to... I, I really hope that they're good on that road because I think it'd be cool and there's lots of narrative possibility. Yeah, you don't want to think there's any kind of um, weirdly benevolent sexism going on where mm. they allow the heroine to go dark because that's somehow seen as, oh, she's no longer a, a role model for little girls. She's you no know, longer pure. Right, because 
you know, if you're looking at it from that angle that you want girls and young women to identify with this character, seeing her be tempted by something like that and go dangerously to this precipice, mm. that is what identifies people with characters. You know, that mm. that's what's exciting and it makes you root for them. Yeah, no, definitely. They have to give Ray like that extra depth, I think, because she is a very good, like, kind-hearted person in The Force Awakens. And I think they need to challenge the character and have her evolve more beyond that. She can't always be good and kind. She has to be tested. And I would like to see her make mistakes, which the dark side would count, I think. Yeah, so that was a very cool discussion. So thanks for the question, Rupert. Um, And then to move on, we have our next question from Ali on Tumblr. And this question reads... What exactly does the Stormtrooper program and reconditioning entail? My impression of the First Order Troopers was that they were taken as children and raised in such a way as to instil perfect faith, the way Kylo thinks his actions are justified. The way Finn spoke about how terrible the First Order was and the mention of reconditioning makes me think that the loyalty the Troopers feel is entirely artificial, like how programs in Tron can be reprogrammed. So what do we think about this? Um, we don't actually know canonically what reconditioning is yet, right? Mm, I don't think so. I'm guessing it's some form of torture. Either that or some kind of like just forced re-education program. That was kind of my impression of it. Like maybe it's like a two-hour video, like on a loop of like Hux screaming motivational speeches at you. Like that'd be pretty traumatic reconditioning. I could see why Finn would run. Um, yeah really not that clear at the moment because we don't know the reasons for Finn leaving Mm. so it's like oh he made a decision and he was able to break away from those propaganda ideals and everything yeah but then does that lead us to believe that all of the stormtroopers could potentially leave or is there something about Finn that makes him special I think they definitely imply the latter like because they really have Kylo Ren single out Finn on the battlefield when he doesn't fire his gun and they also make no effort to even remotely humanise the other stormtroopers like it's all about Finn as this like unique one-off case like who is able to resist the conditioning and actually become his own person but I do kind of find there's a certain inconsistency with the characterization there because he's obviously meant to have been raised to be a stormtrooper and like a killer since birth but he seems like a pretty normal dude, you know? Like, he's, like, just a regular young guy. He's obviously afraid of the First Order and wants to get away from them. But I don't get any sense, like, of brainwashing from Finn. Like, just someone who's been well-trained in the military and is having a moral crisis. And that almost doesn't jive with, like, what we know about the Stormtrooper program in its current form. And, yeah, it kind of raises lots of questions for me. And... To be honest, I'm not 100% sure that there are good answers for this at the moment. They'll probably come up with answers, but I'm not sure they're available right now. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of thing that I'm not sure we'd get an answer for in the trilogy. Mm. They might explore it. I know that there are existing books about Finn, but they might do something in terms of a way to humanise the, the other Stormtroopers more after the trilogy. Mm. Because... You know, it's an interesting idea. Like you want to, you—it's part and parcel of learning more about how the first order operates, right? Yes. 
Um, but I think the bottom line is we don't know right now. Yeah, no, exactly. Unfortunately, I don't think we can offer the fullest possible answer right now. But it's definitely something I'm very intrigued to see how they handle it. Because I do want to learn more about Finn and what exactly the Stormtrooper program entails. And I expect we will find out eventually just in books, not in the movies themselves. But who knows? Might be surprised. Right. Then we have question three, which is from Jamie on Tumblr. And this goes... In the original trilogy, Luke worked somewhat closely with the Rebels since Vader was tied to both. For eight, we've been told... Ah, okay, um, just quickly to interrupt, guys, I will issue a spoiler warning because this part of the question becomes a bit spoilery and our answer will probably also delve into spoilers. So please bear that in mind. Thank you. Right. For eight, we've been told, or at least hinted, that Rey will be more or less doing her own thing and honing her skills in the Force. It was speculated that Kylo will be joining her, and Hux isn't going to care about Rey. So how will the conflict between the Resistance and the First Order be different than that between the Empire and the Rebels? So, quite the question. Yeah, I think this is going to be the thing... Um well, one of the things that will really separate the sequel trilogy from the original trilogy. Mm. I don't think it's going to all tie together as seamlessly as it did before because, you know, we have Luke as very much part of the Rebellion, right? I mm. don't think Rey is not being set up in the same way because this time we have two protagonists and mm. it's kind of slotting into that role, it seems like. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I very much get the sense that Rey is going to be quite separate from that element of the conflict, that her story and Kylo's story and Luke's story, that's very much going to be about this like spiritual, mystical side of the Force, at least for the majority of Episode 8. Like, it might change in Episode 9, where they become more integrated with the Resistance proper, so to speak. But, yeah, I do think they're going to be quite isolated from that element of the story. So it's not even like you're going to have an equivalent to Luke on Hoth in The Empire Strikes Back, where he was obviously straightforwardly involved with the rebellion and in that element of the conflict. Because obviously in Episode 8, Rey starts off on Act 2. So she starts off in the equivalent position to where Luke was when he arrived on Dagobah. So I think that immediately is going to change that element of the dynamic. As for how the conflict will be different... um, I'm not quite sure how they're going to differentiate it, but I would say it's really, really important that they do. Because obviously in The Force Awakens, one of the main recurring criticisms was that it's just far too derivative of A New Hope, and they really need to mix up that primary conflict between the big menacing military machine and the plucky rebels if they're going to escape those accusations of it being overly similar. Um, And I think one way in which they might do it, again, to delve into spoilers, is that we've heard about interesting things happening with a power struggle in the aftermath of the Republic having been destroyed. With And there's some kind of suggestion that Laura Dunn's character and Poe are wrestling for control of the Resistance, with Laura Dunn apparently being like affiliated with the Republic and feeling that she's entitled to lead the Resistance because Leia's been taken out of commission. Um... And I think that in itself would create a very different aspect of things because it would make it more political and more personal in a way that 
I don't think the rebellion action was in the original trilogy. What, what do you think, Cassie? We've been rabbiting on. <laughs> no, I, I think that makes sense given what we've learned from spoilers so far. Mm. Um, I'm also wondering, and I don't know if they're going to be brave enough to go in this direction in the films, mm. but they've kind of hinted in books like Aftermath and Bloodline mm. that, you know, the New Republic, the Mon Mothma, and the Resistance mm. aren't aren't as good guys as they might originally be perceived. Mm. You know, that it's not just a straightforward case of the good guys versus the bad guys. And mm. because we don't yet know what the First Order are actually setting out to do, I'm kind of wondering if there's going to be something that we learn that will put them somehow in the side of, oh, there's, there's something here that maybe... They're thinking, they're doing the wrong things, obviously. No one can excuse what Hux decided to do with the Hosnian system. Yes. Genocide is never going to be okay. <laughs> but I, I think they're going to blur the lines a little bit. Um, yeah. Just, just based on the things that we've learned from the books and about how Leia set up the Resistance illegally and um, Mon Mothma taking over after... Um, the Battle of Jakku, and then things, you know, it didn't solve anything. There was still war. The fact that we're kind of still repeating history right now shows that things have not been solved, that people haven't had the right answers. Yeah, no, so, definitely. Um, I can see it almost being, like, quite postmodern. Yeah. In, in like, I... the original trilogy was very naive, almost, in, like, how it depicted, like, plucky rebellion, perfect, like, um, holier than thou, like, going up against the evil empire. Like, there's yeah. not much nuance there, and I think they're probably going to introduce that more. Like you say, like, that was an easy setup back in the 70s, but I don't think people buy that now. Yeah, no, I think audiences are more savvy and more cynical, um, and they need something a bit more complex when it comes to that. So I think we are going to be moving beyond that binary good and evil conflict, where obviously the First World is still going to be the enemy, but I think we're likely to see more of like our assumptions challenged so i could see finn leading like a stormtrooper rebellion for example with like the stormtroopers being revealed as actually people too just like finn like and there being hope for them i don't think there's hope for people like hux <laughs> um but it's not going to be the case of the empire in the original trilogy where everyone was wiped out and it was all cheering and there was no Indication of human cost, say, when both Death Stars were blown up. Presumably yeah. with millions of people on them. <laughs> They've addressed that too. I don't know if you've read Lost Stars. Um, no, I haven't. Don't spoil it for me too much, because I do want to. But yeah, like, even hero Luke Skywalker isn't safe from them kind of revisiting these moments and wondering, is that really worth cheering? Mm. So, yeah, you should read that. Yeah, no, I really, really want to. So I love Bloodline. So I know I like Claudia Gray's writing. So I, I hope she definitely plan to check out. Sorry? I really hope that she writes more Star Wars novels. Oh, I'm sure she will. 100%. I, I like to think she's working on something now that she can't talk about. But we will see. Um, right. And then just to close off, we have one last question, which is just a really quick one. It's from You Know It Vampy on YouTube. And they say, Great podcast so far. I listened to both episodes and can't wait for more. Thank you. I did have a few minor questions. How do you two know each other? 
I feel like the podcast instantly jumps into news and whatnot, but I still don't know your relationship. So, Kirsty, how do we know each other? Uh, <laughs> it's really interesting. We're like building it up into this thing, but it's not. Um, we met on a forum, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And got chatting about Star Wars ideas and felt like we had a lot in common, but also there's room for debate. Mm. Um, and then we met up at Celebration when I was home in London for the summer. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history, I guess. And now we have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just two Star Wars fans who met talking about Star Wars and have continued to talk about it together. <laughs> yeah, no, and we're finding we're not running out of things to say. Which is kind of why we have a podcast, because it gives us a great excuse just to yap on and on and on about stalls. It yeah, works really well. There's a certain level of arrogance to it as well, right? Because we're saying, hmm, maybe other people want to listen to our ramblings. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. I do like to think at least they're concentrated ramblings. It's, I think we're pretty good at sticking to topics. Like, at least in terms of stalls. Maybe not the specific topics within stalls. <laughs> But, yeah, yeah. But we're still on these really long running times. Yeah, we'll get better. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um, right, on the note of long running times, I think this is probably a good point to close this off. So I'm Rachel. I'm Stowell's Nonsense on Tumblr. And I'm Journal of the Stowell's on WordPress. And Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr. But um, please come and follow us on Twitter. Now we have one. It's Scavengers Horde. Yes. Come and say hello. Yeah. No, Twitter is a good place to find us. Very a quick and immediate communication. Um, and we love to hear your feedback. And feel free to send us questions. You can send them via Twitter or on either of our Tumblrs or the YouTube comments. So the world is your oyster in terms of choice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. And we hope you tune in next time. Bye. Bye.